standing for the reading of today's gospel lesson, taken from the ninth chapter, the book of Matthew. Listen for the word of the Lord. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, follow me. Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader came in and he knelt before Jesus and he said, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up. He followed him with his disciples. And then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. She was saying to herself, if only I can touch his cloak, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, y'all go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took the little girl by the hand. And the girl got up. And that report spread throughout all of that district. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I miss Anthony Bourdain. You know Anthony Bourdain, food guy? He died five years ago yesterday. Hard to believe. So in my own travels, I try to learn as much as possible about local traditions, about food and culture and faith and people and religion. Having done so in the Holy Land for the past two weeks, I thought it might be fun if Jason and I planned the next trip that centers on faith and culture and food. Doesn't that sound like a fun trip? Yes. Who's in? I'm in. Yeah, oh, half of you. Great. Uh, that might be what we do. We shall see. So I was working on my, my doctorate in D.C. a few years ago, and our crew made it a point to try a different restaurant every night we were there for the short intensive. So Duke's Grocery has the best burger you'll ever, ever eat. Uh, dumplings Beyond serves uh, scorching hot homemade dumplings as if they were from the mainland. Now, we didn't have any kind of communication. We just pointed to a picture and prayed that that was what was coming out, and it was, and it was delicious. Great. St. Arnold's on Jefferson Street still serves mussels in a steaming pail, just like they served to President Washington. Union Market has a little bit of all cuisines, but my favorite place is, is called Kieran's. It's on Adams Morgan. It's a fam family-run Ethiopian-style restaurant. Anyone ever eaten Ethiopian-style food? It is delicious. It is centered around a particular type of bread called injera or nera. It's like a, think about a super-sized pancake. That's what it looks like. It's tangy, it's spongy, and it comes in a stack, and it's steaming. And you tear off a piece, 
and you use that piece as like a cup to grab the meat and vegetables, which are in a, a common large pizza-sized dish that's placed before everyone at the table. It's, it's communal-style eating. It's beautiful. It's messy. I love it. And now who's hungry, ready for lunch, right? Oh, there's no cutlery in Ethiopian cuisine, nor in most of the older cultures of this world, the Middle East, Jesus' day, that was similar too. No forks, no knives, no spoons, just hands to serve with, to eat with, to share with, to do life with, and to sit down and to tear off a piece of bread and, and to scoop up some vegetables or some meat. You want to trust the person next to you, don't you? You sort of check off fears and doubts at the door if you're going to share that kind of meal experience, it takes a little trust, some respect. I've thought a lot about Jesus sitting down with Matthew at that table, someone he had just met, someone who had just been called and gotten up and followed Jesus, and then Jesus followed as a perfectly good stranger to a common table. How could Jesus eat? with someone like Matthew? That's really the question the Pharisees are, are probing, right? Time and again in the Gospels, the Pharisees are asking questions about clean hands and feet and dirt and pots and pans and, and vessels, cleanliness. You're going to eat that food. You're going to eat it from that utensil. But what they're really talking about is the person, right? You're going to eat like that, with that person? I thought a lot about uh, the questions my grandmothers and my mom and, and my aunts would ask me uh, when they finally summoned me in from playing outside in uh, the summer like we're in now. I said, young man, have you washed those hands yet? Anyone ever received that question? You have? So you run some cold water on it for about three seconds and they say, let me see your hands. Do you know where those hands have been? You ever received that question? Yes, ma'am, I do. I swam in the creek. I picked up salamanders. I rode the back of my dog holding on to her coat, and I skinned my, my knee falling off my skateboard, and I rubbed the blood with those hands. But other than that, these hands are fine. What are you talking about, right? You're not touching your food with those hands. You're not sitting at this table with that kind of filth, young man. Okay, can I go back outside and play? That was usually my response, right? How, must, how clean must one be in order to be seated with Jesus, or in order for Jesus to locate himself with us. When Jesus called Matthew to follow him, it was Jesus who actually followed Matthew to a supper table. And it was there he was ridiculed for eating with the sinner. Mercy came to the table in the person of Jesus, but judgment came to the same table in the persons, those good Bible-thumping church folks, those Pharisees who said, why does your teacher eat with such scoundrels? I wish Jesus would have said something like, because they're so much more fun and their stories are hilarious, you ought to give it a try. You know, he didn't say that. Maybe that's what he was thinking. What I think Jesus was trying to teach with his presence among imperfect people is, I don't care about their hands. I don't really care about the food. I don't care about the vessels. I care about their heart. 
There was this common tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed as long as things were clean and sound on the outside, then all was well on the inside of the person. But that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus cares about the human soul. Approximating Himself among broken people is His way of saying, I don't care to lord their faults over them. I just want them to be free and whole. We like to quote John 3.16. Rarely do we quote John 3.17. And I ran across a social media thing today, uh, earlier this week that said, if God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, I doubt He sent you. Don't you love that? Christ came to care for wounds. Christ came to care for wounds. Mercy band-aids. Christ came to teach us how to care for one another's wounds by showing mercy. Those are the things Jesus comes to clean up. One's worth and dignity, brokenness, doubts, fears, anger, distrust. Forget the hands. Just eat. And then walk with people. See the world a little differently. What those religious folks were actually saying is, you mean your teacher is sharing a bowl with those nasty hands, but what they really meant is, with that a life that is so filthy as that one? I wondered about this text this week, how long it had been since someone cared enough to eat with Matthew. Thought about it? That's mercy. Jesus calls Matthew... then he goes to a dinner table. He calls people to follow him, but then he follows this religious ruler to his home because the man's daughter is sick and the man's broken about it. And in his going, someone touches the hem of his garment, like one of our children was just playing with the, the hem of the altar cloth just a minute ago, and I thought, that's so beautiful. Just touch the garment. So I want to keep something tight about this text. I want all of us to. It's, it's from a common table where sinners and saints gather together that Christ conveys what could be the gospel's most important message. I came for the sick, not the well. I, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. I require mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy. Just mercy. Or as we who as Montgomerians who host CJI, is just mercy. <laughs> it's only mercy, and it's mercy that's just that comes through the church. You and I think about mercy in a lot of different ways. The mercy rule applies in sports. You get up by 10, 10, rule, 10 runs, you know, and it's mercy. <laughs> you got to tap out. It's a mercy rule. Or we say, mercy, Lord, have mercy. Can you believe what she's wearing? You know, that, that, that kind of mercy is one tier below blesser's heart. You know what I'm talking about? Or we hear and receive some kind of news and we say, mercy me, that's awful. We have a liturgical prayer. We need to pray it more. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. The word mercy is mentioned some 28 times in the New Testament, Helios in Greek, but some scholars have noted its close phonetic proximity with Helios, which means of the Son, and and some connection with the word uh, eleuthera, which means freedom. It's as if to say mercy has to do with the dawning 
of a new day, the sun breaking on the freedom of the individual. Mercy, just mercy. Brian Stevenson authored the book, Just Mercy, which ought to be a required reading for every United Methodist. (laughs) He reminds us that mercy is most empowering, it's most liberating, it's most transformative when it is directed at those who are the most undeserving, the people who haven't earned it. I would say the people who cannot earn it, who haven't even sought it. It's the most meaningful recipients. Those are the most meaningful recipients of our compassion. Jesus chooses to sit at the table with swindlers and sinners. He hears the cry of a father about his child. He feels the power going out from being touched by a woman who needs to be restored to community. It's all so unexpected. He's not supposed to touch a bleeding woman or much less a corpse. But mercy trumps sacrifice because Jesus cares about the human soul. That's Matthew's story. That's your story. It's my story. And as Brian says, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. If we believe that, which this JC does, and I think the original JC does as too, then we have to believe in mercy for all. We have to believe that grace and not fear or failure is life's great equalizer. We have to be willing to sit at the table with with all, people from all walks of life. Notice the text doesn't say that the table was, was kind of like our Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, you have the adult table and you have the kid table. You know what I'm talking about? There's separation. There's not a table in God's kingdom for like-minded people. We all kneel and we sit and receive the same amount of bread, the same amount of grace. I was thinking this week about the 12 who would recline around Jesus' table at the Last Supper. One was a servant committed to Rome and the other was an insurrectionist and he wanted to usurp the power of Rome and overthrow them with military force, with violence. They're both at the same table. Jesus washes both of their feet. They get the same meal. They receive the same mercy, the same grace. Mercy. Mercy might be the only prerequisite for discipleship. Will you receive it? Will you share it? It's to that truth, to that dance that we are called together as a church. And it's from that place that the call of Christ will place us in close proximity with the needs of humanity. You see, the call of Christ demands that. It demands proximity. Jesus teaches that. He he sits with Matthew, who's cheated so many. He arises to go to a funeral. By the way, the prelude had already started playing. The flautist was there. Did you pick up on that in the text? And the ushers were running around, and there was commotion, and the funeral had started. Jesus got held up along the way because there was a third need, a woman cut off from her community. One may not answer the call of Christ and remain removed, distant from the demands of friends and family and strangers and enemies. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's no higher purpose for your life, for mine, for the life of a church than to respond to the call of Christ to follow me and then to move 
from our mess into the messy lives of others. The thing is, walking life street, that's how this text started. As Jesus was walking along, we ought to come full stop right there, by the way. If you want to draw really uh, close to Christ, then get out and walk. See the needs of your community. Listen for them. Inhale the needs, the needs of your neighbors. Walking life streets is an avenue to find Christ. Try it. What happens is when mercy is extended, when mercy is shared and people notice, it elicits the need and the want for more of it. I can't help but think that it, if this father saw Matthew's story being redeemed, he said, surely if, if Matthew's life can be redeemed, there's a chance for my little girl. Like once people taste it, others want it. There Jesus sits at a supper table with all those sinners unclean. And mercy interrupts again, the need for it. There's a little perspective. Uh, Jesus is approached from the top by a religious leader who wanted mercy and healing for his daughter. He had enough faith to cast himself aside long enough to say, I, I need some help. I can't do this on my own. She's, she's dead. She's dying. She's, she needs you, Lord. And then on the way, there's a woman who comes up from the bottom of the soles of, of the whole community and touches his hem, the hem of his cloak. In other words, whether high and authoritative or, or lowly and on the ground, outcast status, we all need mercy. Every person is broken in some way. Everybody hurts. I've had the REM song playing on loop in my mind all week long. Everybody hurts. You know that song? It sort of resolves into this wonderful chorus, but hold on. But hold on. Hold on. What Jesus doesn't do or say, He doesn't condemn Matthew. He doesn't ask the synagogue leader to recite doctrinal bromides. He doesn't ask the hemorrhaging woman what secrets she's hiding and what she must have done to bring this upon herself. He, he doesn't offer condemnation or punishment. What I choose to believe is Jesus knows we all live in our own hells here and now that sin and, and shame and guilt are their own hell right now. And so with Jesus, it's just mercy. Privileged or impoverished, we all need it. Privileged or impoverished, we're all called to give it, to share it. Listen, hurt people hurt people. Scared people scare people. Broken people break people. But the good news about mercy and grace is that healed people can help others heal. Forgiven people, they know how to forgive others. Redeemed people know the path to redemption. Loved people know how to love. They know how to love big. People who were held know how to hold on to others. God's mercy to us and, and through us, it's bold. It, it comes and it, it crushes guilt and shame. It doesn't try to rewrite the past, but it tries to redeem it and to resurrect it. 
even amid the biggest messes we make or the messes that others make, we just think it's our job to keep perpetuating. God's mercy says, stop it. Enough. Let's eat. And let's walk. Let's walk it out. And so it's that invitation that Jesus issues, come and follow me. It's one toward a life of receiving and giving mercy. Jesus never walked along, he never really sought out people who had it all together. He, he called and he sent sinners and stumblers, those who often had nothing put together but would give it a shot because grace and mercy had changed their story. Wouldn't it be something if the church, if the church had enough faith like Matthew to stand up to follow Jesus as unworthy as he felt to feel like maybe he can change my story. Wouldn't it be something if the church had enough faith like this father to lay aside status, possibilities for promotion, reputation, just long enough to interpret Jesus with a dash of faith that says, my family, my family member is sick, is dying. Help her. Help him. Wouldn't it be something if the church these days had enough faith like this nameless woman to lay aside risk of embarrassment and ridicule and social scorn just to touch a little bit of the garment of Jesus, enough faith, just a little faith for need of being restored and accepted. How important are your people to you? And how important is your brokenness? How important is the brokenness of others? You know, the truest measure of Christian character is how we treat the most wounded and the most vulnerable among us. That's Stevenson's word. The truest measure of Christian character is how we treat the most wounded and the most vulnerable among us. And our convictions are not to majestic or dazzling things, but to dark and hard things that need to be redeemed. Sometimes that means that we are the most wounded and vulnerable person we know. Making it very difficult to, to love your neighbor as yourself if you haven't moved in a place to love yourself yet. Going back to what Brian says, all of our survival is tied to the survival of everyone. All of our survival is tied to the survival of everyone. Is there anyone with whom you wouldn't share a meal? Is there anyone so dead to you that Jesus' mercy cannot resurrect that relationship to new life? Is there someone you love who's been hemorrhaging life for so long and just needs a little mercy to be restored? There's strength, power even, in understanding brokenness, because embracing our brokenness creates the need and the desire for mercy, and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you and I experience mercy, you, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't see otherwise. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. And you and I begin to recognize that 
humanity resides in each of us. And so when Jesus issues a call and says, follow me, he's inviting you and me to see humanity that resides in every person. You're called to see things in people and to hear it in their stories that you otherwise would miss unless Christ had redeemed your mess and you were willing to help redeem someone else's. It's really about mercy, just mercy. It's what you and I receive in Christ. It's what you and I are called to share as the body of Christ, mercy. Mercy me. Let's pray together. We all need it, Lord. Mercy. You in authority, you could do so many things for those of us who don't meet an expectation, have fallen short, and yet you choose to love and to extend mercy. That's all you require. What do we require, Lord, of one another and of ourselves? Maybe this week, you'd be so kind as to pour out your spirit on us of mercy. Help us to give ourselves a little mercy, a little breathing room. Help us to extend a little breathing room and some mercy to others, especially those we love as our brothers and sisters in this faith family. Lord, as we do so, may the world know that we are Christians by the mercy that we share. All honor, all glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Let the church say amen.